Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter chapter number 2. And I want to just read a couple of verses and we'll kind of go from there, okay? Let's look at verse 7. I want to kind of get a little context so that you're on the same page. You know what I mean? And Peter is drawing a contrast between those that believe and those that don't. Look what he says, verse 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he's precious. He's talking about Jesus. He says Jesus is sweet to those that believe. And he goes on. He says, but unto them which are disobedient. That's the opposite of believing, right? He said if you're disobedient. You say, Pastor, why would he say it like that? Because the clear sign of belief in the New Testament is, if you love me, you what? Obey my commandments. Is that correct? A Christian that doesn't obey, there's something suspect with their belief. Come on, you listening to me? The, the whole deal is, Christ says, if you're my child, you follow me. How do you know which person's saved, which person's not? Are you following? If you don't follow, you're not saved. Does that make sense? Yeah. Come on, I'm not trying to make this rocket science here. That's the clear indication of whether or not somebody's believing, whether or not they obey. And that's the clear sign of, of, in the New Testament of a person being saved. They're obedient to the Lord. So he says, uh, those that are disobedient, let's keep reading. He says, the stone that the builders disallowed, remember that stone is Jesus and disallowed is they calculated, they came up with all their calculations and they finally came to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. That's where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. And they decided to try to get a, put him away. They decided to crucify him. And so the Bible says they disallowed him. And the scripture goes on. It says the same has made the head, the stone which the builder disallowed, the same has made the head of the corner. And the cornerstone in the building in the Old Testament was the, was the cornerstone that set the angles, the horizontal angles and the vertical angles. If you were out of plumb, your building wouldn't stand. And he says, hey, Jesus is the cornerstone. What's our faith based on? Jesus Christ. He's the corner. He's the foundation of Christianity. And the Bible goes on. It says there are some that believe, there are some that dis disbelieve. And for those that don't believe, the next verse says, he becomes a stone of stumbling. He becomes something you trip over. He becomes something, you know, there's some people out there that'll say things like this. Well, you know, I believe that Jesus Christ was a good man. I believe that Jesus Christ was a great teacher. I believe he was a good model to follow after. By the way, you're stumbling over the deal. The, the bottom line is he's God. That's where you got to come to. And so he says, you, you, you trip over him. He becomes, in verse number eight, he says, he's a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Even them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they also were appointed. Now, I'm not going to get into that real deep, but the bottom line is this. Mm. Unless, unless you're, boy, I'm going to get deep here for a second. Unless you're chosen before the foundation of the world, unless you're elect, uh, you got a real problem. The Bible says those that believe are those that are appointed unto everlasting life. I can't, 
I don't know everything there's to know about that, but I, I guarantee you this, you better not run from the doctrine of election. You better not run from the sovereignty of God. God understands all that. I have a trouble sometimes figuring that all out. But the bottom line is they weren't approved. They weren't appointed. Okay? You say, Pastor, why is that such a big deal? Let me try to explain it to you this way. The Holy Spirit of God is the one that convicts you and opens you. God doesn't convict you and doesn't draw you to himself. The Bible says no man seeks after God. You say, Pastor, I sought after God. That's because God was wooing you. That's because the Holy Spirit of God reached out and grabbed you. Said, let me show you what the gospel is. Yeah. So this is a really tough subject, wouldn't you? So there are some that are disobedient. There are some that don't believe, and they trip over who Christ is. And by the way, God knew it the whole time. Just like he knew those that would believe and obey. Y'all got that? See the contrast? Come on, you see the contrast in the verse? Okay, now, verse number nine, we're about ready to start into verse number nine. He's talking to those who believe now. He says, but ye, in contrast to those that aren't appointed, those, those that haven't believed, those that are disobedient, but you, and it's emphatic, but you that believe are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. How many have ever met a peculiar Baptist? <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever met one? You say, yeah, I'm looking at one right now. <laughs> Mabel was a lifelong Methodist. She was visiting her son and she was attending wor worship service at her son's Baptist church. And at the start of the service, the pastor bellowed, I see we have quite a few visitors this morning. How many of you aren't Baptists? Will you please stand up? The other visitors seemed too timid to respond, but not Mabel. She stands up. And he asked her, said, ma'am, what denomination are you? And she said, I'm Methodist. And he said, well, tell me, why are you Methodist? She said, I'm Methodist because my mama was Methodist. And I'm Methodist because my daddy was Methodist. And I'm Methodist because my grandparents were Methodist. And the pastor said, well, if... My mother was a moron. My dad was a moron. And my grandparents were a moron. What would that make me? She's probably a Baptist. <laughs> uh, probably a Baptist. <laughs> Did you like that one? I read that this week. I thought I could work that in somewhere. But anyways. <laughs> <laughs> now, Peter's writing and he's saying, hey, bottom line is, you're a royal priest, you're a holy nation, you're peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him that's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, we'll stop right there because we'll read more as we kind of move down through there. I'm going to talk to you tonight about, just for a few moments, I hope, the difference-making difference. The difference-making difference, all right? And we're going to kind of show you in this passage. Now, here's what I believe. Jesus said on one occasion, Satan is a thief. He's a liar. 
How many have ever experienced anything that's, that Satan's stolen from you? You ever lived long enough to experience that? How many of you have ever had Satan lie to you? Yeah. He's always a liar. The Bible says he's been a liar since the very beginning. He started in the Garden of Eden. Lied to Adam and Eve, didn't he? Now, as Christians, I'll be real honest with you. I believe that the next couple of verses that I'm going to try to teach you this evening, Satan would do his best to steal away this truth. He'll do his best to lie to you. Now, let me illustrate. How many would say this at least one time in your Christian experience, Satan has ever come to you and condemned you for something you've done in the past? Come on, raise your hand. Look around. I want you to look around. Every hand should be raised right now. If you, don't, you say, well, Pastor, I just don't raise my hand. Well, go ahead. Put some deodorant on. Raise it anyway. All right? I guarantee you this. Satan condemns. Would you agree with that? Now, let me tell you the difference between the Holy Spirit and the way Satan works. Satan works in the area of condemnation. The Holy Spirit works in the area of conviction. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, he always convicts us legitimately of sin that's not been dealt with, of sin that's not been confessed. Satan loves to come along and condemn you with sin that was paid for at the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, come on, ladies and gentlemen, think. How many of your sins did he pay for? Ooh, I love that answer. Let's say it all together. How many sins did he pay for? Every sin. Now, Satan will come along and he'll throw it up into your face, all the mean things you've done on your whole life. Well, you did this and you did this and you did this and you did this. Let me ask you a question. Do you think there's ever been a time you ever believed that? You ever felt the spiritual yucks? You ever had the spiritual yucks? Yeah. You say, Pastor, what normally brings on the spiritual yucks? You're listening to the enemy. And he'll come along and he'll just tear you up. He will. Satan comes and gives you condemnation. Listen to the Bible. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in who? Christ Jesus. You're either in Adam and you're like those disobedient. You're like those that are appointed unto death. Or you're those that have believed, those that have trusted Christ. And now you've moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. Now, that's one of the greatest thoughts that you'll ever have. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, about verse 27, 25, 26, 27. It says, in Adam we live, but in, 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 in Christ we live, but in Adam we all die. Jesus said, I've come that you might have what? Life and have it what? Abundantly. Man, Satan comes along and he tries to give you this bill of goods and he tries to steal away from you some of these great truths in the Bible and he tries to condemn you and he tries to make you get the spiritual yucks. Are you listening? And sometimes we listen to him and he begins to say, man, you're nothing more than a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner. Yes or no? And he'll steal your joy. And he'll come along and he'll make you uh, not confident in God. He'll make you to the point where you just, you don't want to tell anybody about Jesus because the bottom line is you just don't, you, you got the yucks. You don't, you, you don't, you're not enjoying your, your Christian experience. Now, what I'm going to try to teach you tonight, 
according to this passage, is what it is that God's done for you as his, as his child. Now, Peter writes this. And you remember when Peter wrote this book, uh, it's towards the end of the first century. And by the time he gets to this spot in his writing, Christianity is not popular. And the closer you get to Nero, how many remember who Nero was? Nero was a crazy man. Nero was nuts. He would take Christians and dip them in tar, and then he would light them on fire, and that was the lighting for his outdoor parties at night. I mean, he was crazy. He wanted to rebuild Rome, and I've kind of told you some of these things. He wanted to rebuild Rome, and the Senate voted him down. They said it cost too much money, and, the, and, and he decided he was going to build it anyways. And so he, he lit the city on fire. He burned Rome down because the houses were closed. Most of them made out of wood. The whole, the whole Rome burned to the ground, and guess who he blames it on? Christians. They spread rumors about Christians. They said Christians are cannibals. They have this feast where they eat, drink blood and eat flesh. Lord's table. Man, they spread all these rumors. They, they said that when, when Christians go into these dark rooms, they do all kinds of wicked orgies. Boy, there's all kinds of stuff going around in the first century. So Peter begins to write this passage when these Christians are really struggling. I mean, life is hard to be a Christian. So he starts off in verse number one, and he basically is going to tell these meager Christians what their privileges are. Look at what he says in verse number nine. But you, you that are not disobedient, you that have believed, you that are God's children. He said, you, listen to this, number one, are a chosen generation. You're a chosen race. He basically says, you're not unwanted. God chose you before the foundation of the world. You know, the amazing thing about that whole concept, the Bible says in Colossians 3, in verse number 12, it says, so those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2 and 13, where it says, but we should always give heed to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chose you from the beginning for salvation. You were chosen. You know, I remember as, as a kid growing up, one of the worst things that could ever happen, I know times have changed and now everybody's a victim and we got to work with their self-esteem. Everybody's a winner. I was raised in the old days where you could actually be a loser. <laughs> and when you paid baseball, man, you have everybody out there and, and you did, first thing you did, you got two captains and, and they grabbed the bat and they go up to the bat and then the guy that got the very top, he could put his fingers like that and he got to choose first. How many remember those days? I guess there's other old people in the church, you teenagers go, Shazam. Yeah. And they start choosing teams. Well, you guess who they choose first? The guys that could play. I got Frank, and I got Fred, and I got Bill, and you go back and forth alternating picks, and there's always a couple of guys there that couldn't chew gum and walk. And last but not least, we have, ta-da, 
And then both of them are debating, well, of the worst ones here, who's the worst? We need a right fielder. Hopefully, we'll pray God doesn't let any balls go to right field. Come on, do you remember those days? Man, I guarantee you, you never wanted to be last to be chosen. Can I help you some? God didn't choose you last. He chose you before the foundation of the world. Amen. Isn't that great? Amen. Aren't you glad? Hey, I'm not some unwanted person. God says, hey, I wanted you from the very beginning. And I chose you. He says in this passage, he says in verse number nine, you are a chosen race. You're a chosen generation. He goes on, he gives us the next privilege. He says, you are a royal priesthood. You're not some unwanted person. You're not some discarded litter out there in front of the church that I love these people that throw their trash on our yard. He said, hey, you're a royal priesthood. Now, can I help you with something in the Old Testament, that was big news because you could only be a priest if you were born in the right race. And you say, Pastor, what race was that? You had to be a Levite. Amen. You had to be a Levite. Moses was a Levite. Aaron was a Levite. And Aaron was the high priest. And then they passed it down through his sons until they got messed up. And then they got some cousins in there. But the bottom line is, you could be well qualified. You could have all of the capabilities in the world. But unless you were born of that race, you could not be a priest. Now you say, Pastor, what's the big thing about being a priest? Listen to me. The Bible says to be a priest, you, you actually represent the people before God. You were the ones that went in and made sacrifices. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and, and pour the blood on the altar, the, 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 the mercy seat, and, and he would atone for your sins. You were allowed into the very presence of God. And Peter writes here, he says, man, I want to tell you something. You are a priest. You're looking at Priest Martin. But that's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a Christian. Amen. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that I can now enter boldly before the throne of grace. It's not because I'm born in the right tribe. God says because you're born again. You are now, listen to this, you are a royal priesthood. I like that word royal. We get all gaga. I, I personally got so sick of that royal wedding and all that baloney. Who gives a rip? I'm an American. We got our freedom from those suckers 250 years ago. You know what, Pastor? You just because you're not a girl. And thank God for that, too. As long as we're thanking God, I'm thanking God I'm not from England. I'm thanking God I'm not a woman. Way too much goes on with that women thing. I'd just rather be a dummy like myself. He said, you're a royal priesthood. Man, can I help you with something? Did you know you got royal blood flowing through your veins? It's called Jesus Christ. You listening to me? You talk about being a blue bud. You talk about being born with a silver spoon in your mouth. The Lord says, hey, you're not unwanted. 
You're not a piece of discarded trash. He said, bottom line is, you are a royal priest. Wow. By the way, ladies, I didn't write the Bible. I just thought I'd throw this out. You had no shot at all ever being a priest in the Old Testament. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you listen to me. You yourself, too, are a priest. Yeah. Well, he goes a little bit further. He says, not only are you a royal priest, he goes to the next one and he says, you are a saint. Let's look at the word. Let's see what he says. He says, you are a holy nation. Now, it's interesting that word holy there is a kind of an interesting Greek word because it's used about 100 times, 110 times in the Bible. And sometimes it's, it's rendered holy and sometimes it's rendered saint. As far as God's concerned, uh, if you're a saint, you're holy. The words are used synonymously. You say, Pastor, what is he saying? Well, let me help you with something. As far as God's concerned, the moment you get saved, are you listening to me? God took all your sins and Jesus Christ paid for them at the cross. And God took all of his righteousness and put that on your account. Positionally, you are totally 100% righteous in God's sight. You ever think about that? You say, Pastor, when God looks at me, how does he see me? He sees me in Christ, and his son is the beloved. And because I'm a member of Christ, I too am a part of the beloved. And I am totally holy in God's sight. I know what some of you are going to say. You're going to say, well, you know, Pastor, the problem that I got with that is I know me. By the way, I know some of you too. And some of you are sitting out there and you say, and Pastor, I know you. (laughs) Yeah, every once in a while, saints sin. Say that five times fast. (laughs) Saints sin. Is that correct? Yes or no? But you know what Satan would like to tell you? He'd like to come up alongside you and whisper in your ear, you're just a sinner. No, 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 no. I sin occasionally as a saint. I'm holy in God's sight. You say, Pastor, why is that such a big deal? Because the writer of Proverbs says it like this, as a man thinketh in his heart, what? Let's say it together. As a man thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. Man, it's 10 times better off to think that I'm a saint because I may start living like one. But if I walk around like a sinner with my head down, I may start living like a sinner too. Come on, smile at me. I'd rather have the mindset that I'm holy. I'd rather have the mindset that I'm a saint. I'd rather have the mindset that occasionally I sin. But positionally, I'm righteous in Christ. You listening to me? Come on, are you listening to me? You know what Satan would like you to believe? You're just a dirty, rotten sinner. Yes or no? There's a lot of Christians that walk around, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And by the way, so is everybody else that's saved. We're all saved by grace. But my life's changed. You go into this passage that we were reading, you go to the next book, and Peter says in chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, hey, now that you're a partaker, you're a partaker of the divine nature. He's given you everything that you need 
to be a partaker in righteousness. I don't have to live like a sinner. I can live like a saint. You get what I'm saying? So he's saying, you're not a dirty sinner, you're a holy saint. Well, let's move along. I got to keep telling you what your privileges are. Let's look a little bit further. He said, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a peculiar treasure. You're a peculiar treasure. Some translations say it, you're a people for God's own possession. Let me try to explain to you what he's saying. You know one of the big things that the Jews said, and Paul brings this up. When you read that parenthetical section of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11, where he kind of talks about the Jew. He says, man, God was so good to you, God gave you the prophets. Come on, would that be cool? Would it be nice to have an Elijah be bopping in once in a while? Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Uh, He said he he gave you the law. He gave you the temple, the tabernacle. He gave you the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. And he goes down this list and he says, man, I want to tell you something about being a Jew. It's great because you've got some privileges. But you know, if you're a Gentile, you don't even have any covenants. No contracts made by God that God made some promises that could never be broken. He said, God never made one covenant with a Gentile. He did with the Jews. He did with Adam. He did with Noah. He did with Abraham. He did with David. Are you listening to me? We could go through the Bible and show you covenant after covenant after covenant after covenant that God made with the Jews. And the Jews walked around with their thumbs, you know, kind of pulling their pants up saying, man, are we something or what? Shame being you poor Gentiles. God ain't done diddly squat for you. That's kind of a Tennessee kind of take on it. He said, but you know what? (laughs) King James says, you're peculiar. No, it's the idea of being special. It's being special. I have a set of keys in my pocket tonight. These keys are peculiar to me. This one here gets me in the church, and I have a special key. I've got a, I don't know what, it's a double A. Double A means it opens every lock in the church. There's no room in this building that I can't get into with that key right there. Not everybody's got one of those. I'm not being, I'm not being ugly, but I'm going to be honest with you. I can get in anywhere with that key right there. One key. And this is the key to my house. Right there. I have some peculiar treasures there. It's where my wife lives. <laughs> She's in the nursery, so I can get by with a lot. And Harold isn't here, is he? Harold's laying out of church. We need to pray for him. Now, bottom line is, this opens up a lot of neat things in my life, right? Those two keys right there. I got treasures in both spots. You listening to me? 
What he's saying is this, hey, you're God's special treasure. Is that great? What a privilege. You say, Pastor, what are you trying to say to us? You know what? God's blessed Bev and I. We got a nice home. We got two cars. We got stuff. You ever want to see how much stuff you get? Get about 40 plus years and then move. You can see how much stuff you got. Horrible. And I look at all that stuff, but I'll be really honest with you. You don't know what my real treasures are. I got a couple of them sitting right here. I got some girls. And I'll be really honest with you. If they were kidnapped and they said, how much money can you get together? I'd say, well, I'll empty out this account. I'll empty out that account. I got some retirement money. How much do I have to have? They said, well, that ain't enough. I said, okay, well, I need to sell my car then. I can sell this and I can do this and I can do that. You know, there's, there's no value I could ever put on them. You know why? They're my special treasures. And now they've got little ones special treasuring. You listening to me? Hey, you say, Pastor, how much does God love me? Well, let me help you with something. You're his peculiar people. You're, your, you're his special treasure. Wow. Come on, does that do anything for you at all? And then he goes a step further. He says, that ye. All right, what's the purpose of all these privileges? Let's, let's see what he's going to say. That ye. And he's going to tell you. All right, what does this mean to me? What Being a priest and being a chosen generation and all these great things that God's done for, how does that kind of pan out in my life? Look at the way it reads. It says that you might show forth the praises of him that called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When I really understand my privileges, when I really understand what God has done in my life, the very fact that he called me out of darkness and into the light ought to make me proclaim everywhere I go. I used to be lost. I used to have no privileges. I used to have all of these problems in my life. But now when God looks at me, he sees a saint. Amen. I can't get over it, man. God has been so good to me. I'm going to tell everyone everywhere I go. I'm going to proclaim it. The word proclaim there is the idea of publishing. I'm going to go out and publish Jesus everywhere because look what Jesus has done for me. That's what it means. You say, Pastor, why do we tell folks about Christ? Because of what of all he's done for us. Now, if you look at this passage closely, he goes on and he says, which in times past was not a people. Man, we were Gentiles. We didn't have that privilege. We didn't have those things. But because he loves the church and because we're a part of the church and because we've been saved and we're put into the body of Christ, now, even though we weren't in times past a people like the Jews, He says, but now you're the people of God because you obtained mercy. 
Man, I love that word. You say, Pastor, what does the word mercy mean? It means God withholds from me something that I deserve. Grace is God giving me something I don't deserve, and mercy is withholding something from me that I do deserve. You say, Pastor, why did God save me? It was the mercy of God. I love the way Paul writes when Paul begins to talk about this incredible relationship. Listen to the way Paul writes. He says in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, he said, We were formerly in darkness, but now we walk in the light as children in the light. Paul basically says that even though I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor, and I was endless, but I obtained mercy. Mercy's great. First Thessalonians 1.16 says, For this cause I obtained mercy, that in first Christ might show forth long-suffering for a pattern of them who after believe on him to, to life everlasting. You say, Pastor, what's that verse saying? Paul said, when God saved me, he did it to show the whole world that he could save anybody. I'm a pattern of the worst you could be. I did murderous things to the church. He said, I, I chained people and put them in jail. I separated families. I, I was horrible. I wreaked havoc in the church. But God saved me. And if God can save me, he can save anybody. Amen. He said, I obtained mercy. God took action. Well, let me quickly show you, and I'm trying to, I did, I did get on my time. I was trying to cut my sermon down because I knew we were going to have some testimonies tonight, so I did really good. I'm almost <laughs> shocked by what time it is. <laughs> I looked at my wife, and I said, holy mackerel, I've really done well. <laughs> so it finished it, Pastor. Just shut up and sit down. All right. <laughs> now, look what he says. Look at our performance. He said, this is what your life ought to look like. Just dearly beloved. Don't you like that? <laughs> Man, I used to be a rotten, sorry sinner, and now I'm dearly beloved. Isn't that great? He says, dearly beloved, I beseech you. That word beseech, and I'm not going to act it out other than this. Beseech is getting on your knees and begging. I'm imploring you. He said, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. This world's not our home. We're just a passing through. You listening to me? This ain't all it is, folks. We get maybe 70, 80 years here on earth, but someday we're going to die and go to heaven. Are you listening to me? He said, I'm just a stranger. I'm just a pilgrim. He says, all right, what should your life look like? He said, abstain, notice this, from fleshly lust. Don't go back into that lifestyle of what you were before you were saved. Don't go in there and, 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 and be running your life by fleshly lust. You're supposed to be indwelt by the Spirit. You're supposed to let the Spirit have His rule and reign in your life. You don't want to live by the lust of the flesh. You want to live by the work of the Spirit. He said abstain from that. Don't give in to that. 
Live a pure life. He goes a step further. He says, which wars against your soul. Be real honest with me. Don't raise your hand right now. How many of you uh, have ever felt that war going on? There's something inside that says, I want to do this. And the Holy Spirit says, whoa. You ever been there? Come on, if you're not there, you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> Bottom line is, there's a battle. It wars in your soul. There's always a conflict. Who's going to control me? And the scripture goes on. He says, not only abstain from lustly flesh, live a clean life. He goes a step further. He says in verse number 12, he says, have your conversation. That's not talking about what comes out of your mouth. It's talking about your behavior. It's talking about your lifestyle. He says, have your lifestyle, notice this, have your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles. Sometimes, now I know I probably shouldn't tell this story, I'm going to tell it anyway. Sometimes I get a little embarrassed when I go around town. Somebody asks me, they'll say, is so-and-so a member of your church? Yes. Ooh. For the next five minutes, you kind of go, well, actually, they're, they're under watch care right now. <laughs> We've moved them to the top of the deacon list. They'll get a visit this week. <laughs> he says, have your conversation honest among the Gentiles. He says, whereas they speak against you as evil doers. I started off my sermon. They're cannibals. They get in the dark and they have orgies. He says, hey, bottom line is live your life in such a way that the world can't slander you. Live honestly among the Gentiles so that when they say mean things about you, it's not true. You get what he's saying? He goes a step further. He says that they might be your good works. They might behold and glorify God in the day of visitation. You know what he's saying? He's saying live your life in such a way that you do good deeds among the world so that God gets the glory. How do you explain that? How does a Christian live that way? How does a Christian turn the other cheek? How does a Christian do things for people that slander him and make fun of him and mock him? The only way you can explain it is God. Amen. I was reading, it, reading this week. I, w- I want to read something to you, and I know it, it's, it'll take me just a second to read this, but I want to read this. In the first century, let, let, me, let me tell you about Christians in the first century. Christian husbands and wives were faithful to each other. They avoided divorce. Women were treated with dignity and respect. They didn't have abortions. They loved girl babies. They would look for abandoned babies and girls in the forest along the seashore, and they would bring them into their homes, and they would raise them as their own. Because in the Roman culture, especially with the growing shortage of women, Pagans married younger and younger, and there were many girls who were never allowed out of their homes their entire life because the parents were afraid they'd be kidnapped. Yeah. 
They'd be raped. They'd be taken as child brides. And some of them were married as young as 10, 11, 12 years old. But the church was different. The church insisted that women not marry until they were 18 or 20 years old. And they'd be virgins on the day of their wedding. An astonishing change came in the empire because of increasingly it became evident that the church had cornered the market on females. And there was a disproportionate supply of marriageable women as a result of that. Single men in Roman Empire by the tens of thousands started coming to church. And many of them were converted and became Christians themselves. Again, by the tens of thousands, young Roman men were converted in order so that they could get a wife. When plagues hit the cities, the standard public health approach was to leave town. And if you left disabled your children or your elderly, they normally were left behind. The Christian often would risk the loss of their own lives and would stay behind to take care of those that were abandoned. And they would feed them and they would love them. And when the family members divorced, they'd come back three to six months later with, when the plague had finally subsided. And the family members who had been abandoned now were converted. Because they discovered a care and love among Christians that they'd never find in their own families. And when the slaves and others were found to, forced to populate the cities, it was Christians that offered them places to stay and helped them find jobs. It was Christians that taught them the language that they needed to know for commerce. And they lived constantly in a holy manner that was astonishingly transforming. The amazing thing was, if you study Secular history, the big thing is they said, well, you know, the Roman Empire finally converted to Christianity at about 312 A.D. because Constantine had this vision of a burning cross and he put that, those letters on his, on his banner and he went out and he won. And so he said he saw this vision of Jesus and he became a Christian. No, let me tell you the rest of the story. By the time that story takes place in 312 A.D., by now, listen to this, 56% of the empire was Christian because Christians were living in such a way and proclaiming it and telling folks and helping people so that people now, it was a majority of Christians. Kind of convenient that Constantine had the vision. No, he made a political decision. He recognized if you can't whoop them, you join them. Are you listening to me? You say, Pastor, why did that happen? Why did Christianity grow from we start off with 11 dudes? Are you listening to me? We had 12, but one of them, you know, did what he did. And then that 12 becomes 120 up there in the upper room praying. How many remember that? And then 120 becomes 3,000 saved, are you with me? And then the Bible says that people are getting saved and people are getting saved and people are getting saved and Christianity spreads. How did that happen? Well, let me show it to you again. Let's read the verse. The Bible says, hey, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. 
Don't live your life the way you used to live it, he goes on. He said, which wars against yourself. Have your behavior honest among Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, you by your good works, they behold. That word behold is a great word. It's the idea of fixing one's gaze upon. It's the idea of, of this afternoon I was watching the Dodger game. Now, you know, I'm a Dodger fan. And you, you say, well, I'm a, whatever. I don't care. I'm a Dodger fan. I really don't give a stink who you root for. And Clayton Kershaw was pitching. And I can promise you this. If my wife would have come up there, she'd have to do jumping jacks in front of the TV to get my attention. Why? I'd be looking around her. I'm beholding Clayton Kershaw pitching that ball. My gaze is fixed upon. Come on, you listening to me? You say, Pastor, uh, does it matter the way you live in front of an unsaved person? The same guy, Peter, in the next chapter, chapter 3, is going to say, hey, you unsaved husbands, listen to me. He says, your wife's going to be chaste, and your wife's going to be submissive, and your wife's going to live the right way in front of you, and they will behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. It'll change them. You say, Pastor, I've been doing that for years and years and years. It hasn't helped that knucklehead I'm married to. <laughs> Keep doing it. Amen. Scripture made you promise. Amen. Come on now. Did it make you a promise? Yes or no? Yeah. They will notice. Yeah. Folks, let me tell you something. People are watching us. They watch you like a hawk. I've been pastor of this church so long, I can't go anywhere. Hey, Pastor Phil, do you recognize me? Yeah. How long's it been since I've seen you? 22 years? No, I really don't recognize you. I have no idea who you are. In 22 years, I've changed, and guess what? You have too. People watch you. Are you listening? This is a good sign. <laughs> means I'm really trying to quit. How many of you ever heard Charles Haddon Spurgeon? You have never heard him preach, because if you ever heard him preach, you'd never come back here. Anyways, <laughs> Charles Haddon Spurgeon is probably the greatest Baptist preacher that's ever been. Now, I know some of you say, well, well, you know, Jesus was a Baptist. Well, you can't prove that. All right, I'm just going to be real honest with you. <laughs> Can't prove that. Spurgeon was incredible. I mean, he was incredible. He had orphanages. He built a church building that was astronomically expensive. And Spurgeon says, I'll tell you what I'll do. This is the kind of guy Spurgeon was. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pay for it. They said, how are you going to pray for it? He said, I'm going to preach Monday night and Tuesday night and Thursday night and Friday night. I preach four times a week in churches all over England. And every penny I make will go into the building fund. And he paid that church off. They had 5,000 seats in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And they had tickets. Tickets. If you didn't have a ticket, you didn't get in. 
He was incredible. I guarantee you, you want to read an incredible man with a broken heart? Because all of them turned on him. Spurgeon on one occasion got on a trolley and he paid his fare and the driver gave him his change back and he put the money in his pocket and he sat there and he rode along he was going to his house. And he thought about it. He said, I didn't think that was right. He said, let me check that. And he, he looked at his money and he counted it out. And the guy had given back too much change. So Persian took that change and put the money back in his pocket. And when he got off, he stopped. And he looked at the driver and he said, sir, he said, when I got off, I got on, he said, you changed some money for me. And he said, you gave me back too much money by accident. And he gave him back the money. And the trolley driver said, no. It wasn't no accident. He said, I went to your church last Sunday. I wanted to see if he was honest. You say, Pastor, what's my greatest witness? It's not these big flapping jaws. How well do you live it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? Amen. Live up to who you are. Peter gets down on his knees and he says, I beseech you, I'm begging you. It's the only way to live. Amen. You got to admit, that is a great passage. Would you agree with that? Amen. That is absolutely incredible. I wish the Lord would inspire me to write one thing in my whole life. <laughs> that is, that has got to be inspired because there's nobody can write it like that. That's incredible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful tonight that you love us. Lord, I pray for all of these teenagers that are here tonight. Lord, the real test.